So our reading today is from Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 to 46. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David called, calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, if you're a tennis fan, this year may well see the uh, departing of some of the greats. Here are some on the screen. You recognise their faces and you know their names, I'm sure. You, it's Serena Williams, possibly the greatest female tennis player of all time. Well, I'm just going to say to you some figures, but uh, Serena Williams, she's won 23 single Grand Slams. If you include uh, doubles and mixed doubles, I think it goes up to something like 46 Grand Slams that she's won. Just let that sink in. But 23 single Grand Slam titles. Uh, Rafa Nadal, he's won 20. And uh, Roger Federer, obviously the greatest of all time. Uh, he's won 20 as well. Great success. And what a privilege it's been if you're a tennis fan or if you just watch Wimbledon when it's on once a year. Uh, what a privilege it is to live amongst the time and see these great tennis players and super ambassadors for the game. I say that because we return to Matthew's Gospel this week. We've taken a break from Matthew's Gospel since last July, where we were journeying uh, passage by passage through Matthew's Gospel that wants to present Jesus in two ways. Matthew wants to present Jesus as teacher, but also as saviour. And in Matthew 22, where we uh, let off, Jesus is being opposed and faced with a barrage, a volley of questions, you could say. These great opponents come to Jesus like tennis players, the other side of the net. And it's, it's been the Sadducees throughout chapter 22. Just look back with me. The Sadducees that have been opposing Jesus verse 15 to 22 of Matthew chapter 22. The Sadducees said to her, Jesus, who, who should taxes be paid to? Who should we pay our taxes to? They're, they're trying to catch Jesus out. They're trying to catch him, lay a trap for him. Verses 23 to 33 of Matthew chapter 22. Jesus, uh, do you believe in the resurrection? They're trying to catch him out again. Jesus has been opposed and faced the opposition from the Sadducees throughout chapter 22. And, and now Jesus is faced by a different, a different opponent. The Sadducees pass away into the, the background and the Pharisees come to the fore. And a lawyer, verse 34, comes to Jesus. And Jesus gives an answer that is so so traditional that no one could challenge him on it and yet it's so deeply searching that everyone else would be challenged by it. So let's take a look at this new opponent that Jesus faces 
and the question that he asks that reveals the problem that we all have. That's the first point, a question and a problem. In Matthew 22, Jesus has been answering questions and disarming beliefs of the Sadducees. And now it's the turn of the Pharisees. In verse 34, a lawyer, a skilled person of the day that knew the Old Testament scriptures front to back, back to front. But they were the polar opposite, the Pharisees from the Sadducees that Jesus faced in the opening section of Matthew 22. Remember the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious conservatives of the day. The Sadducees were liberal. The Pharisees were very conservative. And the Pharisees thought that if they kept God's law, then they could win God's favor. They could win God's approval. They could win a smile from his face. God would reach out in love and acceptance because of their morality. That's what the Pharisees believed. But there was a big problem from that moralistic standing. The Pharisees did not just believe that God gave them 10 commandments. The Pharisees thought, no, no, it's not just 10 commandments. We believe, said the Pharisees, there are 613 direct commandments from God that we can keep and that we must keep and that everybody must keep. So they were very legalistic. They were very moralistic. They thought we're not just going to keep 10. If we keep 613 laws, that's nearly one or two for every day of the year. Got my maths wrong. Sorry, Bertie. If there were two for every day of the year, then that means that we could win God's favor. We would win God's approval. We would win a smile from his face. We would win his delight. So the lawyer comes and here's a key question. The lawyer says, Jesus, can you give us an executive summary? Jesus, can you give us the ones that we really need to keep? Jesus, which ones can we let slide? And which ones, which ones can we really keep to win God's approval, to win his delight? I mean, there are so many. Just tell us the summary, Jesus. Just give us the headlines, Jesus. Surely we don't really need to obey 613. Just give us the top two. Just give us the top 10. Can you give us the summary, Jesus, of what we have to do? And Jesus, in verse 43, 44, 45 and following, redefines the content of the law and also addresses the motivations that people should have for keeping the law, the content of the law and the motivations of the law. And he does it in such a way that's so striking that by the time we get to verse 46 of Matthew chapter 22, look at what it says. From then on, no one dared ask Jesus any questions. That word dare is petrified. They were so struck by the, struck by the answer that Jesus gave that no one dare come to him with any other question. They were shell-shocked by the wisdom of what Jesus said so how did jesus answer the question jesus answered the question from the pharisees and the lawyer that's their representative by just quoting two passages from the old testament from the bible here they are deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 redefining the content you need to love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and then Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. 
and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says you can condense like a rich source. You can condense all of the 613 commandments, Pharisees, that you think are what I want you to do so that you will be acceptable to me. You can condense it. You can summarize it to just two. Here they are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. But also you need to love your neighbor as yourself. How does Jesus summarize the content of the law? This is what Jesus is saying. It all boils down to love. It all boils down to love. Jesus says, all of the law is about loving God and loving your neighbor. Love, love is not just celebrated in a week's time, in a Sunday's time on the 14th of February when the world goes nuts for love. It's Valentine's Day. Jesus says, when you obey me, when you put me first, the law points to love and love summarizes the law. That's the summary of what Jesus says about the content of the law. Let me prove it to you from two of the Ten Commandments. Let's take number eight and nine. Here's the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Now, this is not just saying, boys and girls and adults, too, you shouldn't take from what is not yours. You shouldn't just not take from something that's not yours, whether it's a favorite toy of a brother and sisters and you want to take it from them, whether it's a, a car belonging to a neighbor that you've always wanted to have that car, whether it's a mobile phone teenager that's the upgrade that you can't quite stretch to at the moment and you want to take it. That's not what the law is saying. The law is summarized by loving God and loving your neighbor. So the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, is to be fulfilled, not just by not doing something, but by love for God being expressed by being radical in your generosity, radical in giving your money away to organizations like Tear Fund and mission organizations like Mission Sweden to support Ben and Emily and Dan and Laura in France, giving your money away to care for those who are in need. It's not just not doing something. It's loving God so you don't love money so you can be radically generous with it. Here's number nine from the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't lie either. Thou shalt not lie. God is not just saying not to do something. When you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength, and when you love your neighbor because you love God, that means you, you live a life of self-revelation. You can be honest with the people around you. You're not manipulating people with the truth. You don't lie. You're a truth teller. But truth is not to an axe that you wield or a sword that you use to harm people. When you love God and when you love your neighbor, you don't take away, you give generously, and you don't take life away by telling lies. You give life by telling the truth. You're not manipulating people. You're not spinning the truth. You're a truth lover and you're a truth teller. It's a very positive view of the law that Jesus gives as he redefines the content to the question that the lawyer gives. But it's not just the content. It's also the motive. Notice the order of what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, when you love God, when you put him first, you love your neighbor. A heart filled with love for God is seen like a waterfall or a bubbling brook. It's an overflow. 
to loving your neighbor. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse five says this, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And then you love your neighbor as yourself, says Jesus. But this word love can be used in many different ways, and it doesn't mean the same thing, or at least it shouldn't. I know of at least one family that during lockdown have bought themselves a dog. But imagine this. If someone called Dave, for example, said, I love my dog. I love my wife and I love God. Now, there are three true statements, loving a dog, loving a wife, loving a God. But if you mean the same thing in each of those three statements, you should be in trouble because loving an animal, loving your wife and loving the God who has rescued you, that can't mean the same thing. That can't mean the same thing. Here in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is saying this is what it means to love God. It means putting him first. It means loving no one or no thing more than him. And your motivation for keeping the law is out of love for God. When you love God, when you are head over heels in love with him, there's nothing he cannot ask of you. And so when he is first in your life and you are way down the list, you can your love for him is shown with your love for other people. Your head over heels in love for God and yet nothing changes in your life, then something's wrong. There has to be passion for God. There has to be delight in God, delight in the person of Jesus and all that God has done for you through and in his son. And that's seen in your life and love towards other people. And so Jesus is saying only those people who are passionately in love with me will love their neighbor. Look at verse 36 of Matthew chapter 22. Behind this question, what must we do? Is the Pharisees' way of thinking, their way of viewing the world that says, if I just know what to do, if I just know what rules to keep, if I just know what not not to do, then that means that I can win God's approval. I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to do what's right. I'm not going to do what's wrong. And then God will accept me. He will approve of me. He will accept me into his presence. I will have an eternal future to look forward to. That's what the Pharisees thought. And we can be just the same. If you think I'm going to do the right things and not do the wrong things, and then God will accept me. If you think I'm going to do the right things and not do the wrong things, and then I'll feel good about myself. If you think I'm going to do the right things and not do the wrong things, and then other people will look at me and respect me, and then I feel good about myself. Jesus says, no, if you treat the law like that, if you treat God's law like that, it will be a crushing burden for you. It will be a weight for you. It won't be something that points to your need for a savior. It will crush you. It will destroy you. It will be overwhelming weight for you. There's nothing you can do in terms of morality to rescue yourself. You need a savior. You need a rescuer. And that's something that the law points to. What Jesus is saying here about loving God and loving your neighbor only 
makes sense when it fits into the bigger context of Matthew's gospel. And so there's been a, a question and an answer. And here's the second point. It's now it's Jesus's turn. Jesus in the next portion says, well, let me ask you a question. And that question points to the solution. A question and a solution beginning in the next section. Beginning in the first sentence of Matthew's gospel, Matthew wrote with his quill 2000 years ago. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the son of David. He says that in chapter one, verse one. You also have Jesus as son of David in Matthew chapter 20, verse 30, when Jesus gives blind people back their sight. There's a blind man outside a city wall and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He knows who Jesus is. He's heard about his reputation. He knows perhaps something of the Bible and he cries out to God for help. But simply calling Jesus son of David does not reveal the whole story. Jesus is the son of David, but he's more than that. What do I mean? Like those wonderful tennis players, Serena Williams, Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer. He's the greatest of all time. You can tell I'm biased. Jesus no longer is on the defensive like he has been for all of chapter 22 so far. Now, as it were, he goes to the net and he's on the offensive. And now Jesus is not receiving the questions. He's asking the questions. Look at verse 42 of Matthew chapter 22. It's about his identity. Jesus says, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, quoting from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, what is Jesus asking? Now, the people who heard this from Jesus' lips knew the context in which he was speaking far more readily than we do. But Jesus's foundation of the argument is going back to the Old Testament and every Jew would know what God had promised, that there would be a Messiah. That's a Bible word for saying God's anointed king. There was a king who would come, God's king, who would put everything wrong right, who would uh, liberate the Jews from any tyranny that they faced, who would bring justice and righteousness to a lost and needy world. But the Jews are asked a question. Jesus goes to the net and he asks a question saying, so, you know, your Bible. So let me ask you a question, Pharisees, about Psalm 110. How is it? How is it that Jesus? How is it that, that this, uh, this appointed king, the Messiah, how is it that Jesus would be or the king would be David's son? How is it that David, the king of Israel, can say about this king who would come, my Lord, who's God, says to my Lord? That seems a contradiction. What is David saying? How can David be speaking about this great figure who would come in the future, who would put down all the enemies of justice, all the enemies of God would be brought low? But, but in this psalm, Psalm 110, says Jesus, this Messiah, this, this God's king, how can God's king of the Old Testament, David, call him this shadowy figure, my Lord? How can David do that? Verse 45, if David calls this person Lord, how at the same time can he be David's son? It seems very confusing, says Jesus. How do you understand it? 
How can the son of David be David's Lord? How do you understand Psalm 110, says Jesus? He's on the offensive because Jesus knows there can only be one answer. The only way David's son can be David's Lord is if, as, is, as if Messiah, God's son, is also David's son. The only way that David's son can be his Lord is if he's also the son of God. These two realities that the son of David is also the son of God come to fruition in Psalm 110. And Jesus at this moment is revealing his human and divine identity. He is the son of David. He's the one that Matthew has been revealing as savior and as teacher. But he's not just David's son. He's also the son of God. And that means he's come not just to defeat the, uh, the enemies of the Jewish people. He's not just to give them earthly liberation. He's also come to lay down his life as the son, sacrificial son of God, and to defeat the enemies of sin and injustice, those who oppose righteousness, and even death itself. Jesus is saying, David could see me. I am King David's greatest son, but I'm also the son of God. I am completely human and I'm completely divine. Because if he was just an earthly person, he would not be a wonderful example, the unique example of someone who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength, but also the prime example of what it means to love his neighbor as himself. Psalm 110 is used here to reveal, to peel back the identity of Jesus, son of man, son of David and son of God. He and he alone will put all the enemies of God under his feet, not just political, not just ethnic, but these great and ultimate enemies of sin and of death. And he will do it once and for all as he writes every wrong the whole world will face. And the only way he will do that is in the unique actions of Jesus Christ on the cross, single arm to arm combat, so to speak as David's greatest son comes and rescues a lost people for himself on the cross of Christ. It's the question that Jesus asks, and it's the solution that Jesus alone offers. Jesus is King David's greatest son, but he's also the son of God. He's completely human, but he's completely divine. And so he and he alone is uniquely qualified to die for the sins of the world and to rescue God's people from a lost eternity. Now let's spend just a few minutes putting those two realities together. Let's put it together by quoting Jonathan Edwards. Now Jonathan Edwards was a triple jumper, but there's also a Jonathan Edwards who was a pastor in Massachusetts in America a few centuries ago. He was a Christian man and he said this, there is a difference between a moralistic person and a Christian. There's a difference between a Pharisee and a Christian. There's a difference between a religious person and a Christian. Here it is. Jonathan Edwards said this. It's so helpful. A religious person obeys the law out of an empty heart. They use God to try and fill their hearts with blessing. It's just like a, a vending machine. 
we use and obey the law, then we can get something from God that we long for and need. But a Christian, says Jonathan Edwards, a Christian is someone who obeys God out of a full heart, not an empty heart. He just wants to delight God and the people around us with who God is in himself. Do you see? In these two passages that seem very unconnected, but they're very connected, Jesus is questioned on morality. And Jesus says, Pharisees, you have an empty heart, but those people, Christians who know me, they have a full heart. One obeys in order to get, one obeys in order to give. That's one of the signs that you've become a Christian. The law is no longer a crushing burden on you. It's no longer a ladder by means you think you can get to heaven by it, but it will crush you like a huge rock that you try and carry by yourself. But in Christ, there is freedom. In Christ, there's liberation. Here's two steps that we need to see that these passages point us to. First of all, you need to see your condition. The Bible says that we are sinners. We are rebels that have turned our back on God and willingly want to go our own way. We construct our own way of a ladder to heaven, of going up steps. But if you try and use the law, it'll be like a huge rock that you're trying to drag or carry, and it will absolutely crush you. So the first sign of freedom, says Jesus, is to understand the gospel. It's not a, lay, a weight that you have to carry, but it's a, it's a burden that points us to a savior and a rescuer that we need. It's a schoolmaster that points us to Jesus as our closest friend and rescuer and redeemer it's jesus you see it's jesus who is the perfect example of what it means to love god with all his heart with all his soul with all his mind and with all every last drop of his strength it was jesus who demonstrated that on the cross he loved and he was the only one who ever can and ever will love god perfectly with all his heart soul mind and strength at that very moment on the cross that's what he's doing. He's loving God. But also at that moment, as he loves God with all his heart, mind, soul and strength, he's thinking of the glory of God first, putting God first. But he's also thinking and demonstrating perfectly of what it means to love his neighbor. He's pouring out his love and his life. But he's doing it for God first and he's doing it for you and me. It's the perfect example of bringing these two commands together. When you see God doing that for you, you see in me a Lord and master who is safe, who is good, who is kind, who is altogether lovely. All of us need rules. We need boundaries. But we, whatever the rules they are, we always break them. We always feel condemned when we do. But Jesus is the one loving master who, when you submit to him because he died for you, you will find that he accepts you in spite of every imperfection you have. Every rule you break, God will not cast you out. But in the cross, he bids you to come near. That's the first step. Surely by God's grace, he reaches out with arms of love to accept you. And so you can go out and start living a life imperfectly, 
but wholesomely obeying the law. That's what you want to do. That's the first step. I am more wicked, says the gospel, than I ever dared believe. I'm more wicked than I ever dared believe. The, the law shows me that. Just try keeping it for an hour or for a day if you think you're not. I'm more wicked than I ever dared believe. But here's what the cross says. The cross says this, but because of Christ, I am more loved and completely accepted than I ever dared hope. More wicked than I ever dared believe, but I am more loved and completely accepted than I ever dared hope. The first step destroys your pride. You can't walk tall anymore in your own strength. But the second step of God's unconditional grace and love, that destroys fear. God knows us. And yet he never pushes us away. That's called grace. It's God's grace shown to us in Jesus who reaches out to us through the cross in arms of love. It's a process to understand grace. It's hard. We say as Christians that we know that God accepts us in Christ. But there are so many issues in our life that show up, that come out of the top of our shirt, as it were. Our heart revealing itself because we still think that we can earn our salvation. We just think we can add a bit more to God's rescue plan. We think that uh, God perhaps is insufficient to rescue us, so we just need to help him along. And that and that alone is why we're filled with so many problems in our heart, because we think we understand the gospel of grace, but it still needs to trickle down and rework the CPU of our heart, the central processing unit. It's that complicated and it takes a long time. But let me close with this. Charles Blondin. Charles Blondin was the amazing French tightrope walker who uh, threw a tightrope over Niagara Falls. On uh, June the 30th, 1859, he threw a, a rope across Niagara Falls. I don't know how he did it. And he promised that he would walk across it. There was a huge crowd that came, 10,000 people gathered. They were really excited. His, his manager, Harry Colcord, org organized, publicized, and 10,000 people came. And this is so amazing. It was so great that they decided to do a new trick, a new stunt the next week. And over the following weeks, the crowd grew and grew. Here are some of the things, the crazy things that Charles Blondin organized. One week, he, uh, he went across uh, with a wheelbarrow. And in the wheelbarrow, there was a... Uh, an, a stove for a fire and he lit the stove he sat on a chair i don't know how he did it in the middle of niagara falls on this tightrope and he cooked for himself some scramble egg he uh, stood on his head he did some somersaults one day he cycled across it on an adapted bicycle and he was running out of stunts and so he, harry colcord his manager came to an idea how about you carry someone else across from one side to the other 160 feet above Niagara Falls. How come you, you, you could do that? We can organize that. And Charles, you could do it, says Harry, his manager. I know what I do. I'll put a thousand dollar reward in the newspaper and then we'll get the right person. You can carry them on your shoulders from one side of Niagara Falls all the way to the other. So that's what they did. But no one, no one was willing to go on Blondin's shoulders. And so Blondin said to his manager, I bet his teeth were chattering. Harry, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to come on my shoulders because no one else wants to. And Harry said, OK. So they started on one side. They uh, 
Blondin's feet went onto the rope. And as soon as his feet went onto the rope, then Harry started to lose confidence. His manager lost confidence in his star in Blondin. And so he started to compensate. He, he thought Blondin was losing his footing. And so Harry started to move and compensate. So when Blondin went to the left, Harry went to the right. And the newspaper that was there recording for posterity, this superb stunt, said that you could hear Blondin shout to Harry, you must stop compensating. Just go with me. Don't do the opposite. When I go to the left, you need to go to the left. When I go to the right, just go to the right or we're done for and we're falling to Niagara Falls. Harry was absolutely terrified, but he placed himself in Blondin's hands. He says, you're going to have to be me, says Blondin. You're going to have to act like me. You're going to have to put myself yourself in my safe hands. You're going to have to leave everything to me. Let's me carry your burdens, stay on my shoulders, don't try and be a counterbalance, put yourself in my hands. You need to become part of me, mind, body, and soul. Apparently that's what Blondin said. And that's a great example for a preacher because that's exactly what Jesus cries out to us. Blondin apparently says, if you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself, we're done for. Don't try and save yourself at all, or you will lose yourself. And Jesus Christ, like Blondin, says just the same thing in the gospel. You cannot save yourself by being a Pharisee. Even if there were just two commandments you had to keep, we would still fail under the burden of the law. But the law points us to Jesus, who says, like Blondin would say to Harry, rest in me completely, trust in me utterly that's exactly what it means to be a christian jesus says father because of the sacrifice that i made on the cross would my followers rest in me accept them because of me because of what i've done in me and in me alone help them to trust not in themselves but in me that's what it means to be a christian but just to push it a bit further, Blondin could have dropped his manager, Harry. But Jesus will never drop those who trust in him. No one will ever fall who rests in the strong, sufficient grasp of Jesus. And if you want to push the metaphor a little bit more, that's because Jesus plunged into the depths of the justice of God so that we will never have to. And all we need to do to put down our struggles of thinking we can make our way to God and to trust him.